Welcome to Finance for Physicians, a show where we empower physicians like you to practice medicine the way you always dreamed you would. This podcast features doctors, physicians, and experts that share one main thing in common. We believe having control of our finances leads to having control of our lives. In a world where doctors' lives are often dictated by our needs to maximize income, pay back massive student loans, and buy homes, many of us give up reaching those goals. But it doesn't have to be this way. If you are ready to learn how financial wellness creates happier doctors and patients, then I'm your guy. I'm your host and financial expert, Daniel Wren. Let's get started. What's up, guys? Have you ever sat and thought for a moment, what are the skills that I'm missing or what do I want to work on? What areas of growth do I want to focus on? As I'm recording this, it's early in the year and that's that's a common time when people think about those sorts of things, like what do I want to do this year? So today we're going to be talking about some opportunities for growth within the medical world. And as physicians, the training is unique in that it's very hyper-focused on educational content around becoming a great physician, but inevitably there's stuff that's missing there. And so on top of that, you got the healthcare system, which is just really messed up. I mean, there's a lot of problems with it. And so we're going to be zeroing in on some of the most impactful life skills that oftentimes are missing in your traditional training, but that can really make a really, really, really big difference in improving your life. So to discuss this topic, I have brought in a buddy of mine, Dr. Jimmy Turner. He is a practicing anesthesiologist. He's an entrepreneur. He's a life coach for physicians. He's like myself, a self-proclaimed money nerd. He is the host of the Physician Philosopher podcast and the Money Meets Medicine podcast, which if you haven't checked those out, I definitely recommend those. On top of all that, he's able to balance in being a husband and a father to three kiddos. So he's got a lot going on, but as you'll hear from our conversation, he has a really good handle on some of these things that are not in the traditional skill set. And so we're going to be talking more specifically about what you can learn from entrepreneurship. We'll talk about the importance of getting out of this autopilot mode we all get into and doing some deeper thinking around like what's most important and what's my purpose and how am I, how am I going to align my actions with that? We'll talk about several areas of, of cognitive psychology and why it's so important to understand what, what this is and, and really when it's happening and that having that awareness of it. We'll talk about the importance of asking for help or hiring people to help you. And then Jimmy has a really interesting stat around online courses that was really surprising to me that I think you'll be interested to hear and I think should be in the back of your mind as you consider like self-development. And on top of all that, we're going to talk about boundaries. And I think that's that's one of the most important things is learning to say no and establishing these boundaries as life gets hectic. So we had a great conversation. I enjoy talking about this type of topic and we can go on and on and on. There's a lot within it, but I enjoyed it. I'm confident you're going to enjoy it as well. And so without further ado, let's jump into our conversation. Jimmy, what's up? Thanks for coming on today. Hey, Daniel, thanks for having me. Couldn't be more excited to be here. Yeah, I, we were just talking before we hit record, and 
a lot of the stuff we're doing has a, a lot of overlap. So there's all kinds of stuff I'm excited to talk about. Really, I think we could talk for hours and hours. There's all kinds of, Jimmy's a fellow money geek and that's always exciting for me. Now, I don't wanna bore you guys too much with all that sort of stuff. So there's all kinds of stuff we can talk about. What I'm most excited to talk about is this challenge in the physician circles of working inside this broken medical system. And you've even taken the initiative to write a book about it and have kind of broken down like how doctors can thrive in the broken medical system. And actually that's the title. It's determined how doctors can thrive in this broken medical system. And so I'm excited to kind of zero in on that topic because it's such a big, huge topic. And it's like you work a lot, you spend a lot of hours in your work. And if it's broken, that's going to kind of seep into all these other areas of life. It reminds me of like, I always bring this up. It's, it's, you know, maybe not the best comparison, but it's the mattress analogy. Like people say, you know, you spend eight hours a night on your mattress. You bet you better make sure it's a good solid mattress. Same sort of thing with your work. If you're in a kind of a challenging system, you're gonna, you, you want to ideally solve that problem quickly. So I'm excited to talk about that. Maybe before we jump into that, I would love it if you could kind of break down like how you got where you are because you're a physician, but you're also doing all these other things, which kind of fall into the category of your book. Like you're helping solve the problem. Yeah. It's an interesting journey if I take you all the way back, but maybe I'll start big picture and then kind of whittle things down a little bit. So my journey was, I did all my training at Wake Forest and ended up going into anesthesiology, do regional anesthesia now. During my fellowship, I kind of picked up an interest in personal finance. And so big picture, I went from fellow and regional anesthesia to an acute pain regional attending here at Wake. And then six months later, after my fellowship started a blog, it was on personal finance. And I always kind of melded those two ideas, personal finance, so financial independence and wellness from the very beginning. And so in the beginning, it was kind of a, you know, you fight burnout with financial independence. And that was actually one of the taglines of my website early on, I uh, was fighting burnout with financial independence. And so the reason for that was because I recognized that the reason people stay in a job that they don't like is because they can't financially afford to leave. And so I put those two things together very early, November of 2017. And so the interesting part is that, and, and this is, you know, so many things, I mean, we, this really could be like a four hour podcast, by the way, <laughs> but yeah, so basically short, short version of the story. I went to get disability insurance as a third year medical student. When I had our first kid, I was actually in term life insurance, but the, the insurance agent talked me into applying for disability insurance. I have an essential trimmer. I take propranolol for it. I was going into procedural specialty. I got denied. So when I got to training and they had the guaranteed standard issue policy, I could have gotten that. But the only stipulation was that it couldn't have been denied before. So oh. because of that, to this day, I am a practicing anesthesiologist and I do not have disability insurance in terms of an ONOC, you know, private disability insurance policy. So I very much became interested in personal finance later, realized that, you know, the financial industry wasn't my friend at the time. So I started learning a ton about this stuff and I was like, oh, great. Well, you know, these doctors, they're really struggling with burnout and I've learned a ton about money. So I want to teach them a ton about money. And then maybe if they can use this knowledge to create financial independence, they could work as much or as little as they wanted. And so I, I went that journey for a while. And the interesting thing was, is that I started burning out too. So I had a couple of career situations happen. I had a couple of positions pass me by four times, not once, four times. Hmm. And, uh, and so I was like, Hey, like, I'm just not going to find my purpose, my meaning, my, you know, I don't know, accomplishment that I'm looking for inside of medicine. And so I transitioned that into my business and I traded in the end, I traded physician burnout for entrepreneurship burnout. But when I first started getting burned out in medicine, I was like, you know what, I'm going to do what I teach everyone else to do, which is to create financial independence 
so that I can pull back from medicine. And so that's why I went into my business even more and then later experienced the burnout from the entrepreneurship side. But my journey was basically from trainee who got burnt by the insurance industry, learned about money, got burned out myself, tried to use money as, as the solution to that. And it didn't end up working. So I, I transitioned into coaching later and now kind of do both. <laughs> yeah. There's a whole bunch in there as you were saying. Four hour podcast. Four minimum four hours. Like there's, <laughs> there's a bunch of little, you know, few words, but huge topics in themselves. I think the one, a few of them that really stick out to me, I think that are important to talk about is this idea of the pursuit of money slash financial independence or whatever you want to call it. Like the pursuit of money as the solution. It's common. Everybody does it. I've done it before. The culture is completely all on board with that idea is that like, let's go hardcore pursue money as the solution to the problem. And it sounds like that's kind of where you started, right? Yeah, it is. And and so in psychology, because I, I geek out on psychological literature, books, stuff like that. It's called an arrival fallacy. So Tal Ben-Shahar, he's a Harvard-trained psychologist, came up with this idea, right? And so money ended up being like the penultimate arrival fallacy for me. Like I got burned out. I was like, I'm going to double, you know, jump both feet into my business, created a, you know, $600,000 business, had enough financial independence from that to step away from medicine if I wanted to do that full time. And then I wasn't any happier than I was when I was burned out. And so it turned out, oh, like this financial independence and working two days a week in medicine instead of five, which is what I'd gotten down to, wasn't the answer. In fact, I ended mm -hmm. up back on antidepressants because I lost my purpose, you know? And so it's an interesting thing that when you don't have something and you look up to that mountain, you're like, well, when I climb this mountain and when I get there, that's when I'm going to be happy until you crest the mountain and you find out, oh, I'm actually not any happier than I was, which is what money ended up being for me. Yeah. I think that's extremely common, especially it seems like it's amplified in the medical training, just the way it works. It's like, there's all this buildup and it's almost like pain <laughs> and you can kind of justify the pain because of this future buildup. And a lot of it ties to making a bunch of money in the future. So I've heard many, many people be like, all those things will be fine once I go into practice. And I think they quickly realize it doesn't change anything. Well, and it's, it's a little devastating, right? Because all, all through training, you finish college and you're like, okay, medical school is the next step. Focus on that for the next four years. Okay, medical school is done. I'm focusing on residency for the next three to five years. Okay, that's done. I'm focusing on my fellowship for the next one to three years. Oh, that's done. I'm going to focus on becoming a partner for the next one to three years. And then all of a sudden, when you've done all of those things, you've kicked the can down the road. Like, this is when the happiness is going to happen. This is when the happiness <laughs> is going to happen. And you went through all of this stuff, you know, saw these terrible things, got PTSD from the healthcare system and all the horrific human, you know, terror that happens in it. And you get to the end and you're like, wow, man, I kicked this can down the road for 14 years and I'm not happy. Like that is devastating. Like that is like the penultimate arrival fallacy. And so when you get there and you realize, like Gertrude Stein said, that there is no there there, it is life altering. And then all of a sudden you're dealing with this problem that you didn't even know you'd have because you expected that giant pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and, you know, mm -hmm. unicorns and happiness. And it just doesn't turn out that way for a lot of people. Yeah. Like I said, I've had conversations with people many, many times and, you know, conversations on the podcast where we talk to people. I think of one recently, Hala Sabri was talking about her transition into practice. And she, she was like, her idea was that money was going to buy happiness. And then she quickly realized it just made her more of the same person she already was, which was really interesting to me. It's kind of a different way of saying this all. It's like it amplifies kind of who you are already. And she was like, I don't want to be that person. I need to. So then it was like, I got to do the hard work to change. So that's the challenge. It's like, 
hard work to change. And a lot of people, it's not on the radar, I don't think. They're just kind of like rolling with the flow, doing the thing. I'm a big fan of Dr. Sabri. She's a good friend of mine. But I completely agree. And, and it is hard work. And, and I think that what happens is people get put on autopilot. Like it, it's just so easy in medicine to say like, this is the next step, blinders on, I'm just going to tackle that one thing until you finish that journey. And then there is no autopilot. You actually have to make intentional decisions about where you want to go. Otherwise you take the same journey that every other doctor does and end up in the same exact place. And then you have this very common narrative. It's only when you get to the point that Hollow was describing there with you, where you're like, oh, wow, I don't want to be like this anymore. I, I, I need to make a change. And then you're forced to make an intentional decision. But until things get off autopilot, it's just like this just trajectory for misery for a lot of people. Yeah. Whether it's in training or even in entrepreneurship, like you were talking about, when you're committed so much to one area of life, for example, you're working 80, 80 hours a week, like it's almost like there's no capacity to be able to get off out of autopilot. It's almost like you live in autopilot when you're doing yeah, that. Yeah, 100%. I completely agree. And that's a dangerous spot to be. Yep. So you made the shift and I see a lot of people making the shift and it's exciting to make the shift, but it sounds like your story was a little bit like mine. I have had to learn through some mistakes and failures and running into brick walls. And sometimes that's the way you got to learn. Failing Forward is one of my favorite books from John Maxwell back in the yep. day. Yep. But it sounds like that's been kind of your experience too, huh? Yeah, no, totally. I, um, yeah, I've got all sorts of, you know, the obstacle isn't in the way the obstacle is the way, you know, you can't know success if you don't know failure. I mean, you, you have to have that kind of mindset. And interestingly, uh, medicine never taught that to me. I think that that's a fundamental skill you have to have in life. And medicine taught me, you just have to succeed. Like you just got to keep pushing until you, you get what you came to get. And so it's this, you know, like it's an unacceptance of failure. Whereas what taught that to me- Perfectionism. Actually, yeah, oh yeah, perfectionism is bad. And it's rampant in medicine. And so entrepreneurship is what taught me how to fail forward and forced me to do that, to be honest, because what I did, and I talk about this in my book and determined, I overgeneralize things. So like I am by nature, or I guess I should say, no, I'm a recovering perfectionist. And so when I would make a mistake and I tell a story in the book about putting a central line in a patient for the first time ever, I'm in training to become an anesthesiologist. I'm an anesthesia resident. And during this, this period, I'm an intern and during the story. And I built this central line up to build, be like, you know, one of the penultimate, like just big procedures that every good anesthesiologist has to be able to do in like 14 seconds. And so I stayed late after my shift, after midnight, when I was in emergency room intern on that rotation. And I tried to put my first central line in, I completely botched it. The patient had us, you know, it was super therapeutic on her INR. So she bled everywhere and I pulled everything out together. Like I dilated and then pulled it all out at, at the same time. And so all that to say, I made a really big hole in a very large vessel and a patient that was had very thin blood and my upper level looked at me and she's like, well, you'll never do that again. And so she's like, hold, hold pressure. I'll put my gown on. And so like, I stayed two hours after the shift to do this procedure that I just completely botched. And then I stayed up for three, four hours after that shift when I got home, like basically perseverating on how bad of a doctor I was going to be because I'd made a mistake. Right. And, um, and like, that may sound like really, really strange and like, wow, that's a bit much Jimmy, but I, I cannot tell you how common overgeneralization is because I had one bad thing happen and I overgeneralized that one procedure that I should have been learning from as a trainee into, I am a terrible doctor and I'm always going to be a terrible doctor and perseverated on it for quite some time. And so that perfectionism is rampant in medicine. You know, like when you have a bad patient outcome, you get your first medical malpractice case in, in terms of being named in a lawsuit, or you get a bad patient, you know, online review, like doctors take those things and then overgeneralize them to, I'm not good at what I do. And no one really gives you the skill set in medicine to say, 
actually, there's another way you can frame this. You don't need to do that to yourself. You can be compassionate. And so I, I didn't learn that until I became an entrepreneur because entrepreneurship, you, if you don't adopt that mindset, you will not succeed. <laughs> it's just part of, it's just part of the entrepreneurial way. And in medicine, that's not the case. It's like the foundation almost. I remember when I started, I kind of started in the entrepreneurial world a lot sooner, like right out of undergrad. And one of the first, I always talk about Jim Rohn. He's one of my favorite speaker authors, but uh, I just kind of like just soaked up all of his stuff for hours and hours and hours. And a lot of it was around this kind of stuff we're talking about is the philosophy around how to be an entrepreneur and was so helpful to kind of experience that because I have a, you know, perfectionist lean like like a lot of us and also the whole I'm not good enough thing and it's so easy to get in that cycle but like medicine just like you said doesn't really teach that and it almost you you there's so many people that end up in that cycle like you were and what's the issue like because that's not I mean I wish it would it might be a solution to teach it but like what's going wrong here is it just because I can see where the argument if I'm in you know the medical culture is like well we we really we're talking about people's lives you know like it's easy to kind of be like, well, it has to, I mean, you got to do the best possible for the patient because we're talking about lives, but like, how do we start to kind of turn the corner on that? Yeah. So, I mean, whether medicine likes it or not, soft sciences, which I think is an offensive term, but that's what they're called are a thing and there's evidence and there's, you know, data. And just like there is for quote unquote hard sciences, which is hilarious because they're no more true than soft sciences, but you know, like cognitive distortions and teaching about psychology should happen both during training in terms of like day-to-day -day care, like when you're supervising resident, fellow, attending physician is working with you. It should also be part of, you know, medical school training in terms of how do you deal with errors when they happen? How do you deal with the other cognitive distortions? You know, whether it's overgeneralization, like I talked about before, or, you know, it's something else and, you know, uh, either or fallacy, you know, or false dichotomy, it's another name for that. Like, how do you deal with these things? Well, the first way you deal with them is by knowing what they are so you can recognize them and then teach them self-compassion, right? Like self-compassion is a skill that almost no one is taught in medicine. And then we eat ourselves alive with our perfectionism and with our imposter syndrome you were talking about. And so like th these are trainable skills. We just unfortunately have to learn them the hard way or sometimes it leads to pretty terrible outcomes in medicine, right? Uh, in terms of, you know, healthcare providers, you know, and we have a suicide epidemic and also their stuff. So like th these are trainable skills though, like supporting yourself and like having this idea that getting help is weak. Like that's an idea that's rampant in medicine, which is ridiculous. And that's something that, if we change the culture, it doesn't have to exist anymore. So from a training high, super, super high level place, these are all things that can be worked on. And I would argue that if they are worked on that the patient actually gets better care in the end. Like, do you really want a surgeon who stayed up for 36 hours, you know, on call and then isn't able to admit that they're too tired not to operate on you because that would be a weakness. Like as the patient, do you really want superhero surgeon saying that, no, 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 I'm fine. I can operate. You know, I know I've been up all night, but is this is just a heart, you know, we're just doing a bypass on your heart. Mm -hmm. Like at the end of the day, like even the patient wants doctors not to be like this. Right. And so, you know, I would argue that if you fix these problems, not only does it help the doctor, it helps the patient. Yeah, I agree. If you sit and think through it, you know, it's kind of makes sense. You want the doctor to be healthy. You got to be healthy to be able to provide good care. And when you're stretched too thin, it's going to come through in all areas. Not only in, that's the other thing too, is if you are a perfectionist, overworked, burning out, whatever, it seeps into all your personal life too. And it tends to mess all that up, which is just to me even worse because that's usually what's most important to people. Well, yeah, and it amplifies things. And 
you know, I, I don't know. I, I might push back on that a little bit, Daniel, because medicine is such a strong idol. People may on paper and, and having coached, you know, hundreds of doctors at this point, people may on paper say, you know, what's most important to me is being a, a really good wife or husband or partner or, you know, mom or dad or, you know, brother or sister or friend or whatever. And that may be on paper what their priorities are, but in their actual life, medicine is their number one overarching idol. I mean, mm. what your life actually says is important and what you think it are important are often not the same thing. And that's what causes this like cognitive problem that people have in terms of uh, it's disorienting, like it's morally disorienting. You're like, no, these are my priorities, but this is what my life actually looks like. And what my life says are really my priorities. And those two things are different. So there's cognitive dissonance that happens. And so you're right. When things get worse at home, what do people do? They run to work and then works the problem causing things to be bad at home. So it's just like this vicious cycle. And unfortunately, that's super common in medicine. Yeah, it's like the old, the, the quote, it's like, show me your checkbook and your calendar. I'll tell you what's most important to you. That's exactly right. <laughs> I mean, that's true. Because everybody says, I've heard him, people say it a hundred times. It's like, usually what people say is my, my family is most important or my relationships or my faith or like charitable giving or like these things outside of work. And then it's like, you know, you're working 80 hours a week and you don't know your family or whatever. So that's tears at you because you, you're not actually being the person you say you want to be. Yeah. And that causes really problematic, you know, moral disorientation. I mean, like you are at that point really struggling and you may not realize it until it gets very, very bad. And you're like just extremely burned out. Is it okay to idolize work? My opinion? I mean, just unfiltered opinions from Jimmy Turner. Cause that's, yeah. that's, the, only, that's the only style I bring. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think that's a problem. You know, it's yeah. um, because I think it would be better if people were honest about it, if they said, because there wouldn't be moral disorientation, right? There wouldn't be this cognitive dissonance. If you said, you know what? Work is my number one most important thing in my life. And then it was, you'd be like, okay, at least I'm being honest. Like I'm calling, you know, spade a spade. It is what it is. And there's no judgment, right? If work is your number one priority, there is zero judgment. I'm not saying that being a, a wife or a husband or a mom or dad or whatever other labels you might have in your life, if those are less important to you, then that's your choice. It's your life. You get one life to live, you live it, right? But don't try to tell yourself that your family and your friends are more important in your mind when reality is really that work is most important because that's going to cause problems for you. I don't care what life people live. It's their life, right? But it's only an idol if you're lying to yourself, right? It's only an idol if it's supplanting something else that's supposed to be more important. Yeah. I think, too, what I would throw in is if you look at people later in their life or on their deathbed, I interviewed a hospice physician and he probably Jordan Grummet. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, Doc yeah. G. Yeah. But he's got all kinds of great perspective on like the back end of life. That's what's so interesting about his experience. And so he talks y'all, if y'all haven't listened to that, definitely check that out. Cause that's a, such a great conversation about like what we're talking about right now. And we extend upon it, but like, of course you're in charge of your own life and that whatever you choose to be calling most important and actually following through with, is, is what it is. And that's great. But the problem, what she brings out is that a lot of people get to the late stage in life and they're like, nobody says, man, I wish I'd work more hours yep. in my job or whatever. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause you know, so doc, doc G and I go way back to, we both started our blogs at about the same time in 2017 and shared a room at FinCon. It's great. He's, he's a good guy. Oh, you've been and, to FinCon. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And so, uh, so he, in that book, Taking Stock is the book. I think it's great. You should definitely go buy it. And so he's got the purpose, connection, and identity, right? And I think it's fascinating when he, when he talks about that idea and what people really get to at the end of the life and what's important. And I think that the mistake people make is that that later realization comes from the fact that their purpose 
in life, their connection with people in life and their identity, who they are, comes from work, right? Mm -hmm. Being a doctor is who they are. It's what their purpose is. It's where their community is. Like, it's so common for doctors not to have friends outside the hospital. Like, that's not normal. Yeah. That's not normal. It's very unhealthy. It's very unhealthy. And so, like, you know, when all of those things come from work and then at some point in your life, you can no longer work. That's when they end up having that realization that Jordan lays down in that book, right? And I think that, you know, so to your point, maybe it isn't an idol because it truly is what's most important to you right now, but that doesn't mean you won't regret it later. Yeah. What he does a good job of is reminding us is like, when's the last time you took an hour to actually ask yourself the question, what's most important and what's your purpose? Yeah. It's that autopilot thing we were talking about before, right? That's not good for anybody. Yeah. When I was preparing for our conversation, I, he has this hospice review thing that he used to use and I was just kind of interested in it and thought it would be good to go through it just to kind of prepare. And it's like, it's kind of a little hard because it brings back, it's tough stuff. You got to think about like, what's, what's most important, what are your priorities in life? And then, you know, that questionnaire brings you back into the past and, you know, explores your childhood and, you know, what things were good and bad and all that kind of thing and relationships and all that. But like that exercise is part of gaining that awareness, I think. And I, when you mix that education with the awareness, you can really, and it doesn't have to be, this is not like super complicated. Well, it's, it's challenging, but it's not super time consuming, I guess, like an hour exercise we're talking about. And that's like the most important stuff in life we're talking about, but people are just resistant to it. It's not hard to understand. It's just hard to do. Yeah. So people are so resistant to do it. I guess I, I think I've gotten in the habit of it or I'm maybe, maybe like naturally lean that direction. So I have a hard time understanding why people are so resistant to go deep. Like I love a deep, you know, thinking exercise and really exploring what's most important, that kind of thing. But, but it's hard. I think that, you know, having coached people almost always the reason that they're not willing to do that is because they're trying to avoid discomfort until you're comfortable being uncomfortable. Those are very, very challenging conversations to have. They're very challenging things to think through. And going deep requires you to take yourself off autopilot, to be intentional, to ask tough questions, and then to be willing to do the work to actually answer them and deal with the consequences of those answers, right? Like if you look back at your life and say, hey, I've had this one relationship that I've never really dealt with that I know is in the back, you know, back burner that, you know, at some point during my life, I'm going to need to deal with. It's just not the way that it should be. I mean, that takes a lot of like time and energy and emotion to like have that conversation to fix that one thing. Or you could just be on autopilot and just be like, no, it's just that thing I'm going to deal with later. And I, which is so much easier. And we all do it. I do that. I mean, I've got relationships in my own life that I probably need to go and, you know, hash out and I've not done it for 20 years. They're called mm. parents. Right. And so, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's just one of, one of those things. We all have it. Yeah. Have you ever done therapy before? Oh yeah. When I did therapy for the first time, my wife brought up the idea. We were not like, it had not gotten really bad yet. So it was very, you know, there were some things that were showing that it was like illogical kind of things. It's like classic therapy is a good solution. So my wife's like brought it up and, and I'm like, she's basically like, are you open to it? And I'm like, ah, they're gonna, I know they're gonna ask about my childhood. And she's like, well, yeah, you know, are you comfortable talking about it? I'm like, I, no, I don't really want to talk about it. Like I don't. But I get that like that's important to kind of work through it, but I don't want to do it. I was living the battle of like not wanting to address the pain, but realizing that is potentially the cause of my weird thing I was doing that didn't make any sense, you know, because it's based rooted in childhood. It's the activation energy, right? Like the amount of 
emotion and time and just difficulty you have to spend to get to your goal when it comes to that sort of stuff is, is really challenging. And so you always have to ask yourself, like, am I willing to go through that in order to get this right? And if the answer is ever no, you just don't do it. You go on autopilot in that area of your life. And that could be financial. It could be personal. It could be professional. And we're always asking, am I willing to deal with the discomfort of that? Or like, mm. I know that when I work out, like do physically work out that I'm going to be sore the next day, right? It's going to be hard when I do it. I'm going to hurt the next day. And at some point I have to decide, is that worth, you know, being in shape and being healthier yeah. so that I may be around longer for my kids. Right. Yeah. But I think this is even, this is like so much harder because we introduced this like emotional component that we're trained or I don't know, culturalized to like bury yeah. on top of it all. So I'm like, I'd rather just not go into super emotional. I know that's where it's going to go. And I'd rather just like bury it, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and I think that that's something that actually causes a lot of the issue in medicine. So on both of my podcasts, the reason why I'm so open and I just mentioned, you know, 20 minutes ago that I'm on an antidepressant that I have been before. I still yeah. am right now. I've got no problem mentioning that because we do bury it. We're told to bury it. And we're told that if you talk about stuff, it's weird. And like there's stigma and like it makes people uncomfortable. And it's like, actually the way that you deal with discomfort, if anybody likes Brene Brown, big fan, by the way, you talk about stuff. That's how you deal yeah. with shame. That's how you deal with stuff that's, you know, harbored in the background is like you actually say it out loud. Now, probably not on a podcast. You probably need to go talk to like, you know, a confidant or. Yeah. Let's start in a small group. One-on-one. Yeah, -on -one. Exactly. With someone you trust that you love that, you know, is going to yeah. just listen to you. But at the same time, we are told to bury it. And that happens with everything. But I mean, even in your world, Daniel, right? Like people do the same thing with their personal finances. They're like, you know what? This is awkward. I'm not good with money. I don't know how to deal with it. I don't know anything about it. And so I would rather just pretend that I do and bury that and put my head in the sand and yeah. then, you know, realize when I'm 47 that I haven't saved anything and like, oh, wait, I want to retire when I'm 55. And you're like, well, I'm sorry, buddy. Like the math just doesn't work like that. That's not how things are, you know, but it happens all the time. People are like, oh, I just finally found your stuff. And, you know, I'm 52 years old and I'm realizing like, I'm not going to have enough saved. It's like, well, you buried your head in the sand for 16 years and- yeah. Here we are. Right. Well, you know, and people don't want to share their private stuff that adds to it even more. I mean, there's uh, so many components that make it challenging, but yeah. what helps me and I think is something to think about is focusing on the what the end goal is or the benefits of it. And to me, it's like living a good life. Like you're improving your life by doing the hard work of thinking about these sorts of things and being vulnerable and asking the tough questions and having courage and that's why entrepreneurship, so going back to entrepreneurship, that's what I love about entrepreneurship. There's no formal training for entrepreneurship, but it's like you have to work on all those things and it's kind of like the foundation of doing it. And I think that's one of the biggest things missing in medicine. And I wonder what it was like back in the day when that used to be like mom and pop docs, you know, had their, everybody had their own practice and they were entrepreneurs back then. Mm -hmm. But now it's not, there's not very many entrepreneur physicians. And that actually, well, in some ways, and, and I'll be honest, having actually, I still wear both hats. Uh, I'm still an employed physician. I still am an entrepreneur. I tell people all the time, well, like entrepreneurship, because the way that we're talking about it makes it sound great. Like, hey, you're going to like conquer all your fears and like you're going to move on to like these incredible spots and you're going to be able to know how to deal with failure. Man, like when I go back and do anesthesia, and now remember, think about this, right? When I do anesthesia and I make a mistake, someone dies. 
Like a human being in this world dies if I make a mistake, right? That is not stressful to me anymore. Entrepreneurship is stressful. And so when, you know, you think about all of these things, like when entrepreneurship is going well and we're solving problems and it's, it's on the up and up, it's fantastic. But there really are some benefits to being an employed person who doesn't have to make all those top end decisions and have the decision fatigue of dealing with every single decision in your business. And so when the physicians, tra you know, transition back in the day from like, wait, so you're going to cut me a giant check and then you're going to deal with all of those headaches that I have to deal with all the time right now. I don't think that they realized all, like what they were trading that for, which was not really understanding and still gaining those entrepreneurial skill sets we we're talking about earlier, right? Like, yes, you do get rid of the headaches. Yes, you do get a big paycheck. But now physicians these days, because they don't own their own businesses, are also lacking a bunch of the skills that they used to have, which is what you're alluding to. And so, mm -hmm. you know, they kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater to some extent. Yeah. And I think so our families that we work with that are in have their own practices or especially like the direct primary care concierge physicians, they're, you know, working on all, all this stuff. And they're they, generally the ones we work with are very happy, like none of them are burning out. Now the business has its own flavor of stress, but like what I interviewed some clients that we work with and they started a concierge practice kind of like from scratch and still had student loans and were like really early in their career. And they, it was kind of a, a stressful switch, but the way they described it was how it's a, it is very stressful, but it's a different flavor of stress and it's much more tolerable stress. Their stress in the hospital world was like no solution possible. You know, it's like, yeah, there's no problem solving going on. Yeah. You're describing it better than I did, which it is a different kind of stress and it does come with a lot of benefits. Whereas the stress in medicine, often there are no benefits, right? Like, so at least in the entrepreneurial you know, world, you're like, oh, well, you know, this is stressful, but I know on the other side of that, it's going to be worth it. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's been an interesting journey, but I guess the reason that I say that, and I mentioned that is because I, I don't want it to be another arrival for people that they're like, oh, if I could just go to two days a week and run this business on the side and have this, you know, like it's tough. And when you are concierge, it's good. But the massive caveat there, having coached people in the same situations is you have to be very, very good at setting boundaries or learn how to, if you don't do that, I guarantee you that burnout will be just as bad because yeah. um, I've seen it. Yeah. It amplifies it in some instances. And so I think what it goes back to is like, I agree. Thanks for pointing that out because I was starting to describe it as a little too rosy and it's definitely not. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's both, right? It's 50, 50. Yeah. It is a different thing, but it definitely comes with its own set of challenges. And what I love about it is it just, it comes with a, or puts you more in the position of the problem solver or being able to pr solve the problems. And a lot of people we work with have no ability to solve the problems. And it, that is incredibly frustrating to have these problems that are seems fairly straightforward to be able to solve. And there's no way to solve the problem that makes you insane. So that's the definition of moral injury, right? So in my world, there, the classic question is, is burnout the right word to describe the phenomenon that's happening in physicians? And I spent an entire section of my book describing this problem because moral injury is when you know what to do, you know how to do it. You have the ability to solve the problem like you're talking about, but you're not able to because the system doesn't let you. That is moral injury. Burnout is, you know, the quintessential, you know, three things that Frudenberger described, emotional exhaustion, depersonalization and lack of accomplishment. And so for me, like that is a false dichotomy. Moral injury is the systemic phenomenon that you're describing that leads to the individual experience of burnout right? It's both. It's both. And, and they're both terrible. They're both bad. They both are miserable places to be. And unfortunately you can have both. 
yeah, they overlap a lot. And I think, so one other thing I was, I wanted to ask you about too, is as we're talking about entrepreneurship and solving problems, um, I see a lot, there's almost like there's a movement almost to go into other avenues to help solve the problem. Like for instance, financial independence, hardcore fire, side gigs, passive income. Those are probably the most popular movements. And I think the problem, this is my opinion, since we're sharing opinions. Yeah, I love opinions. <laughs> Share it. We'll talk about it. My opinion is that I think the intent is to, they're doing that because of the jacked up healthcare system in a lot of cases, or to make more money and probably to make more money to, to get out of the jacked up healthier system, which is kind of the same thing. But the problem is that they're not really solving the underlying issue of my job is jacked, like the healthcare system is jacked up and I can't do much about it in my current position. In some instances, they're forcing themselves even more into that system. And I think that's a problem in some instances. If you're going, and that's for the fire sort of subset of the group. Now the side gigs, passive income subset, the kind of the issues I see there is it's like I see people get spread pretty thin and, and then they're still stressed at their job in medicine. And it takes a long time. Yeah, burn the candles at both ends. I mean, if you if you step back and think about this, right, for any normal non-physician person listening to this podcast, or if you can just like take off your doctor hat for a second, right? If someone made $500,000 a year, $250,000 a year, whatever number you want to say, and they loved what they did, they would not be going out and looking for more work Correct. or saying, how can I do more of this to get out of it sooner? Yeah. Right? So by the very nature of the fact that like, there are Facebook groups on side gigs for doctors that have a hundred thousand doctors in them. Massive. Yeah, massive groups and financial independence groups. None of which, by the way, I'm I'm not hating on either of those things. I've I do both of them. But if you think that that's going to solve your problem, you haven't really figured out what the problem is. The problem is your job in medicine and the system. And and unfortunately, what happens is it, it's a little bit like some of the social programs where like you know what, we're going to give money to this set of people because we really think it's going to help them. And then hopefully they can go back and help the, you know, the communities where they grew up and medicine's the same way. It's like, okay, so we have this problem that's forcing all these doctors out. And so then we give these doctors the solutions of physician side gigs or financial independence or what have you. And then they leave medicine, but they never really go back and try to fix the thing that caused the problem in the first place. And so to me, I would like it if doctors became financially independent enough that we could all stand up and say, no, like this system doesn't work anymore. It needs to be fixed and require it, demand it, fight for it to change so that the people coming behind us don't have to get, you know, the same 47 lashings before they are happy in life. Right. I mean, we should leave something better than where we found it. And unfortunately, a lot of these mechanisms that we're describing are escape hatches. They are ways to just completely leave and to never have to deal with it again. Cause it's too big of a problem to fix. And to me, I understand why people feel that way because I felt that way, but it's sad. Yeah. Do you have to be financially independent to say no? No, you don't. And that's one of the things that I enjoy coaching people about is that you can actually set boundaries and negotiate and you have way more leverage than you ever imagine mm -hmm. if you just realize it and you can say no. Right. And so at some point this is going to catch up to me because I've said it so many times in public at this point, but like, you know, like the online modules, like I just don't do them. I just don't do them. And, and I have online modules from like four years ago that are still not done. And like, but everyone's like, oh, well, I, I'm told I have to do these. And I'm like, I mean, you can, you can do them yet. They'll send you some emails, but like every like 18 months, I'll get this one email from Brenda, our amazing, one of our amazing staff upstairs. I just be like, Hey, Jimmy, I need you to do that one on my online module you haven't done yet. And I'll email her back. I'm like, Hey, Brenda, thanks for letting me know. I have 47 that aren't done currently. Can you tell me which one <laughs> is the one that I have to do? And she's like, oh, it's this one. 
do you really have 46 others that aren't done? Yes, Brenda, I'll take care of that one just for you, right? And then I take care, well, like, I'm, no, I'm not gonna do a, you know, LVAD awareness to make sure that I know that there are left ventricular assist devices in the world. Like I'm an anesthesiologist. If I don't know what an LVAD is, I shouldn't have a job. If I can't recognize a stroke, I shouldn't be a doctor at all. Like, so why am I doing these online modules for these things that I clearly have to have skills? That's like me saying, hey, uh, you know, Daniel, uh, in order for you to continue being uh, a financial planner, I'm going to need you to prove to me that you know how to do a summation on, on an Excel sheet. Like if, if you can't do that and I need you to like watch a module over a, and over, take a quiz on it. You know, we just can't let you manage people's finances. You know, like if you don't understand, like, you know, like a different Excel function, like it's ridiculous. Like you have to know how to do that. Right. Like you have to know a variety of things to do your job. And if you can't do it right, like it just doesn't make any sense. And so I do say no to that. And I've said no to it for like four years. And you know, at some point, someone's going to listen to a podcast and I'm going to be told to do all 46 of those modules and I'll have to deal with that. But it, it'll be time well spent because I told all the people that they can say no to things. <laughs> yeah. Well, the world didn't blow up and, yeah. you know, things haven't changed. I check my email only when I'm at work. I do not check my work email if I'm not physically on the property. And I work three days a week right now. So that means that there's often five or seven days where my work email doesn't get checked. And you know what? The world hasn't exploded. Nothing's changed. No one's died because I haven't checked my email. Like, yeah. I know that's a mind altering thing, but you can say no to that too. Like there are lots of things you can say no to and set boundaries. So none of those also, by the way, to your question, require me to be financially independent in order to do them. Right. I think that's a misconception. That's why I asked. I'm glad you said what you said, because we're on the same page there because, you know, a lot of people are really attached to the idea that financial independence will allow them to begin saying no. And that's, not really true. That's like this idea that the same sort of idea of, uh, you know, when I get into practice, the money is going to solve all my problems. Like money does not solve problems. It's the way you use the money or learn to use the money. In fact, it often causes problems because once yeah. you have, you want. Correct. Right? Correct. Mo money, mo problems. Mo money, mo problems. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so coach, you're kind of getting into coaching. I think that's a good, very underutilized service for physicians, like in, in speaking of entrepreneurship and medicine, like I have had multiple business coaches and it's like normal in the business circles to have performance coaches. That's just like a thing that you do if you want to like up your game. And it's more like in the future oriented, like, whereas therapy is kind of like in counseling, maybe is like, if you're illogical, having trouble, like you don't understand what's going on and both are good, but like coaching is fantastic. I think for really kind of working through a lot of this stuff too. And especially when we're talking about the future and turning the corner of change. And that's another thing we're all prone to is we want to like figure everything out ourselves, like with no help whatsoever. That's weak. Why would you need help, Daniel? So weak. Like don't ask for directions. Exactly right. Just figure it out. Just figure it all out yourself. Doesn't matter if it takes millions of hours, you can do this. You can do everything yourself. That's right. So I mean, we're being sarcastic, by the way. But the problem with that is like you end up spending time, spinning your wheels, and it takes you away from what's really most important, you know, whether it's your family or whatever. And, you know, you got to look at it like that. Like, what are the trade offs? And people are help happy to help people. And even if it's not a coach, but like asking for help, I think is something that we're all weak at and we can do a, a better job of. But coaches, you basically hire them. And they are kind of there to work with you along the way to help you through like in multiple areas. Not only it's like you ask one question, you're asking many questions and they're alongside with you to provide the accountability. And that's, you know, going back to the courses in a different light. It's like everybody gets these courses like 
how to turn the corner in my life or whatever course, like how to figure out how to get to the next level, training online or whatever. And then they don't do it. And, and then they're like, man, what happened? Yeah. But like the action, taking action. So, so it, yeah, so I got two podcasts. So the physician philosopher, the tagline on that one is start before you're ready, start by starting, start now. And the reason why is because of exactly what you're alluding to, like the activation energy, like just getting started is what trips people up 80% of the time. And in fact, if you don't own an online business, you probably don't know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway, if you buy an online course, there's an 80% chance you will never finish it. And so like, like some underwhelmingly negative number of people actually ever finish an online course and actually a pretty large number never even start the courses that they buy. And so it is an interesting thing that we want to start things, right? Like, oh, I want to start working out. I want to do that one online course. I want to, you know, get a financial planner. Oh, I want to get a, a coach and like, but you just don't quite do it yet. You don't realize that those people are the ones that are going to be able to kind of kick you in the behind and say, Hey, let's, let's get you going. You know, let's, let's see how we can get you start before you're ready. You know? Right. And then you get um, hung up on the quantifying the cost benefit analysis. I mean, there's yeah. all things you get hung up on, but like, well, that's a classic one. No. It, yeah. And, and that one's, I actually was having this conversation the other day, Daniel. So I was talking to uh, one of my colleagues. I mean, I said, Hey, I mean, it's, people always ask like, Hey, do, how, how do I figure out what kind of side gig? I'm like, well, what do people ask you about every day at work? You know, that's not medicine related. So for me, that's money. 100%. Like there's not a day that I go to work. People ask me about personal <laughs> finance. And uh, so my buddy's like, Hey, Jimmy, I was talking about investing with my wife. And, you know, I, I just, I'm obviously a big, you know, index fund guy. And so I, you know, I'm trying to get her to, you know, take the money that she's also a physician that she's making and invest that as well. But, you know, she just comes from a different family background and different history around money. And she just wants to stuff it under the mattress. She's like, he's like, what do you think I should tell her? I was like, well, two things. I imagine that you're, since you're asking me about this, you've already had these conversations. So people that don't want to know about money, you can't talk about money. So the second thing is you're her husband. So you're not going to be able to say anything to her that is going to like magically make this just make sense, right? You need a financial planner who can sit as a third person objective party in the room to bounce ideas off of. And when they say something makes sense, right? And they're hearing it from a objective expert they, I bet, will be more likely to come along with you on this ride of investing because now yeah. she'll be able to see the journey that they're going on and the life you're going to create. And this is how you're going to get there. And she's hearing it from somebody that's not you. And by the way, none of that has to do with investing, right? right. Like, like that's, and, and so people, particularly in the financial planning world, they all quantify costs for planners based on, well, but hold on, Daniel, but if I just do index fund investing and you're going to cost me 1% and I do the math on that, and right. that's a seven figure number when I'm 67, how can I possibly justify using a financial planner? And you're like, well, actually it's because investing is not the most important thing a financial planner does, right? <laughs> that, that's the easy part, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's just, it's an interesting thing. And I know that's my yeah. opinion, obviously. What's the value of helping you take action? That's the question and everybody's different, but like, and then what's the value of helping you to continue to stay on track? hundred <laughs> percent. I mean, yeah. and that's for a lot of people. If just look at the older people in your life, ask your grandparents, like, have you made any mistakes? You know, like, tell me about your mistakes. Like, let's explore, like, could, what are some things you could have done better? Like, so if you can improve your trajectory and take more positive action and, and continue on that, that's what we're talking about with these sorts of, whether it's coach or financial planner or working self-development stuff like that, if you can take action and improve as a person, you can't quantify it. It's it's, but it is very valuable. I would argue it's extremely. Oh man, I can calculate my assets under management fee. That's very quantifiable. And so it's so it's it's hard because you're comparing this very quantifiable. I can punch it into a calculator, see what this is going to cost me in sixty years, versus this unquantifiable. Right, but how much would it save you if you prevented a mistake, or if I got you started on the right journey, 
or if I got you to buy disability insurance and then you got disabled long, you know, later in life, but you kept putting it off like that, that is a massive seven figure mistake. Right. And so like, you know, when people start having these conversations, it really is all about, and always will be about the return on your investment. Right. And you have to sit back and think the exact questions that you're asking right now. Right. And sometimes it makes it a little more palatable. If you think about the future, like looking back a year, five years, 10 years from now, would it have been worth to pay X number of dollars if I knew where I was going to accomplish goals A, B, and C, which are really important to me, right? So like, let's say someone wants to start that side gig we were talking about before. They're thinking about getting an entrepreneurial coach, right? Which by the way, is not what I do. So I'm not pitching you my services. Would it be worth it to you to pay $5,000 for a coach who's actually going to make your business really exist and get you the inertia to start creating it so that in five years you have you know, this six figure business, you paid $5,000 to get someone to help you create. Like, of course yeah. it's worth it, yeah. right? You're getting a 20 X ROI, right? So, you know, but the emotional and psychological benefits of having some of this help is not so easily measured. Mm. Right. And that, that, I think that's what makes it tough for people. Yeah. But it, I mean, if you're stuck, these are all possible solutions and, you know, some people get through themselves. I 100%. believe that's a much harder road. And at some point you can't be doing everything yourself. Like we, thrive in relationships. And I think you have to lean on your brother and at some point, but some people have an easier road, like going independent route and solo, and that's all good and DIY and whatnot. But hiring a coach can be fantastic, but really it comes down to like awareness, taking action. And I think that's, what we've been talking about and we're, I know we we're, we're cutting off in, in, in our time here and I don't really want to, cause it's such a good conversation and I want to just keep going, but that's why we set an end in time on this stuff. <laughs> Especially when it's good, man, it's hard to, hard to cut off, but any info about you and like where people can find you. And we talked a little bit about your coaching services and I know that's one thing and you got the book and all that stuff, but what's the best place for people to find you? And yeah, so the best place for people to find me, obviously this is a podcast. So the two podcasts people can find are money meets medicine, which is financial in the medical community content. And then the physician philosopher podcast, which is predominantly coaching and mindset for physicians. And uh, so those are the two podcasts that are out there and they're obviously both free. So that's the place I'd point both of them to. And if they want to learn anything else, uh, they can always go to the physicianphilosopher.com uh, and check out the other stuff that's there. Yeah. Both great podcasts. And I would definitely highly recommend them and podcast. I'm a big fan of podcasts. So um, me, me too. Love them. <laughs> Jimmy, I appreciate it. It's been, been a fun conversation and Hopefully we can uh, circle back and dig into some of this stuff more. Like I think we there's like 15 subtopics within the stuff we talked about. So. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it was, this is a very very broad broad overview. But yeah, no, Daniel, it's a ton of fun. I really enjoyed chatting with you, and and hopefully uh, we can do it again in the future. Yeah, thanks, bud. You've been listening to Finance for Physicians. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast player. On this show, we believe that when you prioritize your finances, you take better care of yourself, have more fulfilling relationships with your families, and most importantly, provide higher quality care for your patients. If you feel this way too and want to learn more, then make sure to join our community. Follow the Finance for Physicians Facebook group for bonus content and sneak peeks on next week's episode. Thanks for listening.